Hello, I'm Jim Mallard, host of The Mallard Report. On The Mallard Report, along with my guest, we will have a conversation where we will share thoughts and opinions. For more information, my bio, past shows, social media links, and so much more, visit mallard.com. M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D dot com. And thanks for listening. Hope everybody's doing well today. Before we begin, head over to veritiesapparel.com slash mallard. Get 10% off, get free shipping around the United States, um, shirts made in the United States, awesome stuff. The Mallard Report shirt is coming soon. I, I know you guys keep hearing that, but me and Aaron have been working on it. Not as easy as I thought it was going to be when I opened my big mouth and promised one, but um, we're getting there. I promise. That's veritiesapparel slash mallard. Get 10% off that way, plus your free shipping in in the United States, and product made in the United States, which is really cool. My guest tonight is Mitchell Horowitz. Mitchell. Mitch, excuse me. God. <laughs> That's okay. My mother will be happy when she hears that. She calls me <laughs> Mitchell. <laughs> She's on your side. <laughs> I'm not sure which is worse, when somebody calls me James or Jimmy. I'm not right. sure. You're Seth. probably in trouble when they call you James, you know. <laughs> the IRS and mom call me Mitchell. So, <laughs> so how are you doing? Sure. How are you doing this evening? Great, good to be here, man. So, good to be. Uh, author, narrator, um, writer. I've also seen the Chinese government has censored some of your works. So, is that yes. did I get that I get the broad the broad strokes out there for everything? That, that's pretty much it. Yes, <laughs> yes, sir. So, so that's quite the business card. Yeah, right. <laughs> we, we managed to fit it all. You know, that's what Twitter has done to me. <laughs> My life in 120 characters, but that's accurate. Yes. <laughs> Well, let's start with the, I think this is the newest book. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. The Miracle Club, How How Thoughts Become Reality. That's the newest one. Yes, sir. Okay. So uh, tell tell my listeners a, a little bit about that. I'm sure we kind of have an idea where you're headed, but what's just. Oh, oh, sure. Well, well, you know, for many years I've written as a historian of alternative spirituality, and I wanted to be clear with people about what my own beliefs are. I've always considered myself a believing historian. I participate in many of the movements that I write about, and my primary commitment is to what might be called new thought or mind metaphysics. It's the principle that thoughts are causative. It's an idea that I take very seriously, that I experiment with, that I care about. So The Miracle Club is really, in many ways, my first entirely practical book, where I write about the methods that I use in my own life, uh, where I talk about why I think uh, some of this uh, mind-based spirituality works. And I suggest techniques that people can experiment with themselves. So give me a little bit. Are you, because I've, okay, stop, put the pen in it. I've been focused on the word intention, intentional doing of things. Yes. Not just slamming things. Are we on the same page there, then? Oh, it- absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, my belief is that, you know, our mind functions on many different levels. There's motor skills, there's cognition, there's, uh, the formulation of ideas, creativity, intellectual ideas, adding up of lists, ordinary routine, mental tasks. But I do believe there's also an extra physical dimension to existence. And I believe our minds do have uh, some role in causation and things that occur very concretely in our lives that go beyond cognition or motor skills. And that's something that I very deeply want to experiment with. I think that in many ways is really the American metaphysics, this idea that somehow, to some greater or lesser degree, what happens to you in life is born of your thoughts. And some people view that psychologically. Some people like me view that more from a metaphysical perspective. But it all begins with clarified intention. It's the most powerful thing in our lives, I believe. Since you mentioned it, I, I'm not, I don't know this, but have we really been beaten? The, almost said a bad word. I'm allowed to, but I didn't. Because it's not right. appropriate. It's not appropriate in the question. I don't. Your think. show, you can say whatever you wish. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think it's appropriate in the question since we're kind of talking that borderline religion stuff. Um, yeah, are we beating the crap out of um, metaphysics over here, or is this kind of where it was always been going? Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I really believe in the practical. I really believe in the practical. And when I say spiritual, for example, what I'm really just talking about is some non-physical dimension of life that 
ESP, that can be full-blown religion, that can be belief in a deity, that can be belief that somehow the energy that, that courses through our body survives us after physical death. But what I really care about more than anything else is that these ideas uh, have some practical application in people's lives. So I really do want to get down to brass tacks in terms of things people can do as far as directing their minds to, frankly, improve their lives. That's what I wish for myself. That's what I wish for your listeners. So give me, I don't want you to get the whole book away, but give me an example of something we can do, we can all do together. Absolutely. The single most powerful thing that anybody can take from my work is the importance of having one absolute, definite, passionate, even obsessive aim in life. It's a law of nature that when you concentrate forces, it it produces energy. It produces a kind of um, a, 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 it heightens force. It heightens intensity. This is true within nature, in as much as it's true in our own psyches. And too often, we diffuse the energy of our lives by not deciding on a particular chief aim, or by hosting a whole bunch of different aims within us, some of which are self-contradictory. Nothing will be more powerful and decisive in your existence, from my perspective, than focusing your life around one definite, passionately felt, even borderline obsessional aim. If you look at most people who you regard as heroes or role models, whoever they are, whether they're generals or artists or activists or inventors, whatever it may be, you'll almost always find that there was one absolute definite thing they lived for. It's the greatest force that life gives to us. It's the closest thing that we have to a kind of magic elixir, and everything springs from it. And we think we do it all the time. You know, we very often think, well, gee, I know what I want. You know, I want ABC. But I always tell people to beware of whatever seems familiar because we can get into this habit space very quickly, and we very often do so when we're quite young of repeating things to ourselves internally and feeling that something is settled, something is understood. We've seen ourselves, but we very rarely do see ourselves because we're subject to peer pressure, we're subject to all kinds of fears. Even when we're just within the private confines of our own thoughts, we like to imagine how how what we think would make us appear to other people. We want other people's approval, and I'm encouraging people to take a decided break from that, to get away from all of that, and to really ask yourself in a new and fresh and unfamiliar way, what do you really want? Because the answer can greatly surprise you. And if you can respond to that question with just total naked sincerity, you'll open up new vistas in life. You'll discover possibilities in yourself that you never knew were there because too few of us are really devoted to an absolute aim. So that's where all mind power begins from. It's it's in one sense very simple, but it's so simple that we're apt to overlook it. We're apt to tell ourselves, I already know this about myself, whereas my contention is we are in many cases strangers to ourselves. So, so I'm going to play for me for right now. We're going to forget yeah. about the listeners because, well, they can't they can't do anything about it anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> so let's 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 use this case study because, yeah, you know, like I said, you're talking to me right now. So let's say I want to be the best radio host on the planet. Yes. Now I don't know the steps between, well, sitting here tonight talking to you and getting the, that point. Does that yeah. matter at when that moment, or should I just worry about the big picture and the pieces will fall into place? Well, it's it's a both-end situation. It doesn't matter at that moment, but you need to identify something that you can take some sort of progressive steps towards. Even if you don't have, let's say, I'm speaking generally, even if a person doesn't have the training to do some particular thing that he or she wants to do, the training has to be something that you can reasonably attain, the skills, the education, whatever it may be, the experience. It has to be something towards which you can take some nascent step, even if it's a very small step. So, for example, what you just said, to me as a goal that makes perfect sense because you already have a radio show. You already know something about public speaking. You already have sponsors. You know, you would need to be progressively building all those things, obviously, but you're not a stranger to the steps that you would need to take. If you said something to me like, 
gee, I want to be an NBA star or what have you, I would say that's a pipe dream. That's a daydream. That's escapism. That's not an authentic goal because an authentic goal is one that you can take some sort of concrete step in the direction of, even if it's very small. It has to be something that you can identifiably begin. But saying that, you know, I want to be an astronaut or I want to, you know, um, sing at the Metropolitan Opera House, you know, obviously things like that, depending upon who a person is and what stage of life they're in, that's a pipe dream. A real goal is actionable. And what you identified, just speaking of yourself, that's a perfectly actionable goal. But I, I, I guess I shouldn't. No, I'm not. I'm not going to adjust my goal. But there's people out there probably think, oh, I'll just be a nationwide radio host, just to keep in this analogy and kind yeah. of bring it down from you know the top end to the upper end of the top. But I, I think people should keep their eyes really, really high up there and just go for it. Right? Are we in agreement about that as well? Well, I believe that people should aim really high, but again, in aiming for something, there has to be some sort of a target system. You know, you, you, you have to actually be able to take a real step. I'm 53 years old. If I was to say, I think I'd like to be an MMA fighter, you know, a professional MMA fighter, that's unrealistic. That's unrealistic. But if I said I wanted to be in the best shape of my life, that's realistic. I could take really legitimate steps in that direction. There has to be something legitimate about your aim. It should be high. It should be epic. It should be ambitious. But there, there has to, it also has to be something that you can act upon. If you can't act upon it in any way, then it just becomes escapism. 53? I'm calling bullshit. I was looking at pictures. I've seen a picture of you today, and I would have guessed in the 40s at the, the oldest. I, I keep it together, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I've been fortunate, man. <laughs> I, I keep it together. Okay, so what, let's go back in time then. What, what, what got you down this road of uh, cult and spirituality and... I think in many ways, first of all, to some extent, it was a childhood fascination. I grew up in the great borough of Queens here in New York City, and I used to take out books from the public library on UFOs and occultism and Bigfoot, and I was fascinated with different kinds of folklore and superstition. I was interested in astrology, and I wanted to ask myself, where did all this stuff come from? I was deeply, deeply interested in trying to kind of follow Alice all the way down the rabbit hole and figure out where some of this material came from, because it all does have historical roots, and some of it's quite fascinating. As I got older and entered adolescence, I really wanted this material to provide practical help to me in life. My folks were getting divorced, and our household was really torn apart by financial disaster. It was a scary, scary time. Like many uh, homes, we were in danger of losing our household. Uh, there was a, a, a tremendous amount of economic uncertainty, which is very frightening for a kid. And I started to turn to this material, not only because I kind of wanted to know about what was coming, could I navigate the world, but my metaphysics in particular, or new thought as it's sometimes called, helped me navigate through these crises and gave me a sense that the quality and nature of my thoughts, my pictures, my visualizations, the ability to say affirmations, the ability to use my mind as a tool was something that I could use as kind of an oar to help steer this boat, which was in very chaotic waters. So I started out just fascinated with occult symbols, but as I entered adolescence, I wanted these things to become of practical help to me. And I feel they did help me. And frankly, I feel very blessed that I was able to follow a beeline of those interests into adulthood. You know, today, I spend a great deal of my time writing about metaphysical practice, writing about the occult in history uh, and in application as a historian, uh, as a journalist, as a practitioner. And that's that's been the greatest blessing of my life. So I'm going to ask you, have you ever worked a day in your life? Because it seems like you're doing something you enjoy. You know, the old <laughs> I am really doing something I enjoy right now, although I must say I spent, wow, must have been about 30 years of my life working in corporate publishing. And in that sense, I did work many days because I didn't really like publishing. I found publishing a drag. It wasn't as intellectually vibrant a field as I had hoped when I got into it. And you spend a lot of time uh, really wrestling with other people's apathy. There's a great deal of fecklessness, great deal of apathy in the business. And that was work. It was very good to me. I, I earned a good living. It helped open me up to a lot of ideas. It put me in contact with some very good people. But uh, I have been working ex 
exclusively as a writer and speaker for the past, mm, I guess, about three years. And that's been the greatest blessing of my life. Uh, publishing was good to me in a lot of ways, but it was time to exit it. Yeah, well, it looks like you've got a lot done, though, in the last couple of years. Staying busy. I have, man. <laughs> I am busy. People ask me, do I sleep? And the fact is, you know, I do sleep, but I'm also stone cold sober. Like, I, <clears throat> at this point in my life, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't smoke pot, I don't do any drugs. Um, and that's fairly recent because, believe me, I have enjoyed those things and the opportunities are abundant. But um, I had to let go of all those things because I need to be going just with the fullest degree of energy and passion that I can possibly bring to my subject matter. And I looked around not long ago and I said to myself, what can I do to throw myself into high gear? What do I... What what strings do I control exclusively? And the string that I selected was sobriety. You know, I knew that if I was completely clean and sober, I could do what I'm doing right now with you, you know, be here with you uh, 9 o'clock Eastern time on a weeknight and not worry about the fact that I just had two glasses of wine with dinner or something like that, you know. And, and I enjoyed that, I can assure you, but... You do learn when you focus on your passions and when you really find them, and I don't mean in some sing-song way, but I mean you really find a passion that you care about, almost like the drawing of breath itself, you want that more than anything else. You want it more than you want to be high. You want it more than you want to sleep. And and finding that passion has been just life-changing for me. So let's go back into the middle ground there of um, when you were working and writing. You wrote Occult America. Now, yeah. Go ahead. I think that I think, came, I think came you know out where you want to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That came out in 2009. It started everything for me. You know, I was invited to give a lecture out in Los Angeles at the school, uh, a school called the Philosophical Research Society, which was founded by one of my heroes, an occult scholar named Manley P. Hall, whose name some of your listeners will recognize. And I gave a talk called The Occult Philosophy in America. And the theme of that talk, this was back in 2005, the theme of that talk was how in America the occult untethered itself from some of the conventions of the old world. Back in Europe, the occult was seen as something secretive and sinister and the property of secret brotherhoods and so on and so forth. And that was not entirely true. Some of that was caricature, but uh, that was the popular perception. American occultists untethered themselves from that popular perception and they viewed occult practices, mystical practices as things that they wanted to evangelize, things that could be a source of practical help in everyday life, could help the individual who had health needs, help the individual who had financial needs, could help the individual find his or her way through the onrush of life. And so I delivered this lecture on how occultism took a, a, a different shape, a more public-facing shape in America. And after the lecture was over, I came to realize over the course of time that uh, that that would become the topic of my first book. And that became Occult America. And that was a wonderful opportunity because I got a chance to write about figures like Manley P. Hall and Edgar Cayce and Paul Foster Case and Adam H.P. Blavatsky and figures whose lives were characterized by a whole mixture of things, successes and failures, brilliance and foibles, but they really lived for something. They really stood for something. And I felt strongly that the history of these people would not get written, or at least it would not get written in a dignified way. Shared their values and understood what it is they were aiming for, whether they succeeded or not. And so that became the basis of Occult America, and that, that changed everything for me. That, that put me on the path that I'm on today. How long did that book take you to write? That's a good question. I would say from start to finish, about three years. I spent about a year working on the proposal. The proposal itself was about 100 pages. I wanted to write a really substantial proposal because I just didn't know for certain at that stage of my life that I had it in me to write a whole book. I had an inkling, uh, and, and I developed that inkling from articles that I had written. I do believe strongly that what you can do on a macro scale, you can repeat 
on a micro scale. And it's great for people to experiment with that. Whatever it is that uh, an individual is interested in in life, if you can find yourself doing it within the batting cage, chances are you can do it within some kind of larger field. And I was able to test that thesis through writing articles about some of these figures. But I was still daunted by the prospect of turning this into a full-scale book. So I spent a lot of time on my proposal, and I recommend that very deeply to first-time writers. You should approach your proposal as if you're really doing your your entire book uh, on a kind of miniaturized scale, and you should have a very clear sense of where you're going and very substantial and complete writing samples, not just for the editor who may be looking at or considering your book, but for yourself as an artist. So you really have some sort of a scale model of where you're going and you have a sense of your own strengths and weaknesses. So I spent a great deal of time, about a year or so, on the proposal, and that was part of the writing process. Then the writing of the book as a as a project unto itself took about another two years. So it was about three years. Because I have uh, a draft, I guess, of a radio book that I've been working Well, I can't say I've been working on it. It's been sitting on the, the desktop. Mm-hmm. Looking, looking at me like, are you going to ever get open me again for the last <laughs> ten months or so? <laughs> right. <laughs> but I leave it on the desktop because I know if I put it in the folder, it's forgotten. Yeah, I understand that. It, you know, it takes a tremendous amount of sweat equity, and it means making sacrifices. You know, it means again. You know, I, I, I mean, I mentioned that I'm sober, but I do remember there were a lot of times where I might have wanted to when I was writing my first book where I might have wanted to, you know, crack open a beer and, you know, be watching Star Trek or what have you. (laughs) And that was completely off the table. I mean, I've gone through phases in my life where I haven't seen movies. I haven't watched television. I, I don't fritter, fritter away a lot of time because it really, I'm either working or I'm hanging with people I love. There's virtually no in between. And once you kind of find your goal and you get into that groove, your productivity just skyrockets. So I want to ask you, it's not in the cult question, but it's a symbolism question. I know you've looked into it. Lay it on me. I have no idea if you have or not, but I'm, I I believe confidently in this. So here we go. Okay. I hope I don't disappoint you. <laughs> well, I'm sure. The, the I'll White come back and say, I've never thought about that. But <laughs> uh, uh, The White House Cornerstone. Yeah. We can't find it. Yeah. We can't find <laughs> right. it. Right. And I've we, tried. <laughs> I'd like to try, but you know. Yeah. I'd hope it's only so close would... you can get. Right. Yeah, well, Trump can... hasn't been returning my emails, so <laughs> I, I may not get another invitation. But we'll see. If he's listening, please, please let me come back with my X-ray machine. No, go ahead. I'm no, sorry. no. I, I, well, that's part of it. Hey, I think we should all get the chance to go in and hunt for ghosts in the Lincoln bedroom and try to find a cornerstone. Wouldn't it be just hey, great to have? I mean, on the weekend we can all just roll down there and all just have. You know, we all have these separate projects we want to do and. Right, right. I'm sure they should just throw the doors open. You know? Yeah, why not? <laughs> what you're asking about, I'm sorry, you know, there's probably like half the listeners are saying, what in God's name are these two talking about? That's um, okay. And half the listeners are like, I've got it perfectly. What, let's let them talk. <laughs> right. There is, a, there is a Freemasonic cornerstone uh, that has been laid in, in, the, in the White House, and there's historical documentation attesting to this, but uh, no one uh, had the presence of mind to write down a blueprint of where it is. So we've never found it, but it is there, uh, at least as, as far as documentation and artist renderings are concerned. Uh, but we have not located it, and it would be a really cool and wonderful thing to locate. I have studied it. Um, I, I would love to uh, come up with a plan as to how this could be this could be done, this could be handled, but uh, uh, the White House isn't a place you can walk around very easily with an x-ray machine, and uh, no one has ever been able to find the stone, so we rely just upon illustrations and uh, historical documentation. Do you believe it's still there? Because I've, oh, right, I've seen these stories about getting stolen. Oh, no, I, I do believe it's still there. We do have really quite good documentation uh, attesting to its, to its presence there, and um, I do believe it's there, uh, you know, Freemasonry has had a relationship with the U.S. presidency. You know, some of, a, a fair number of the founders were Freemasons. A disproportionate number of the uh, signers of the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, or I should say the framers of the Constitution, the signers of the Declaration, Washington's generals. Um, a Freemason hasn't been president any time recently. The last 
um, president who was a Freemason was the mysterious Gerald Ford. And um, so that relationship is not quite what it used to be, but but it wouldn't be surprising at all, you know, that this cornerstone was laid because you had a, a very significant presence of Freemasons among the founders, including George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, John Hancock, Paul Revere, and lots of influential people whose names are less well known. So uh, I have no reason to question that it's there. Unfortunately, we just can't find it. And I'm not you, sure we ever... This is, this is a half-loaded question, too. This is good. Why do you think the, the uh, masonry as president trend kind of ceased? You know, we're no longer a nation of joiners, and the number of people who are Masons themselves has declined. That's true of every civic group. That's true of the 4-H Club. That's true of the JCs, Lions Club, Knights of Columbus, Knights of Pythias, you name it. And it used to be that Masonry was seen as a stepping stone in the world. So it was not uncommon that you would have people who had political ambitions who would be Freemasons. Um, Franklin Roosevelt was a Freemason. Harry Truman was a Freemason. Uh, Lyndon Johnson took steps in the direction of becoming a Freemason, uh, but never actually completed the process. Uh, Bill Clinton, when he was a kid, belonged to a Freemasonic youth group, but he didn't become a Mason uh, in adulthood. So you can see in the lives of Lyndon Johnson and, and Bill Clinton a, a reflection of, of Masonry's fortunes in American life. It's still a very large and vibrant organization. I was just speaking at a wonderful uh, Freemasonic Hall this past weekend in Greensboro, North Carolina, and it's a wonderful mix of people. Uh, the uh, Lodge brothers are interested in esoterica, they're interested in charitable work, they're interested in ethical development, they're interested in symbolism. It's a wonderful, wonderful group, but it's it's not as substantial a part of American life as it used to be, and what you see in the presidency is mirrored in the society at large. Just an interesting, tr- I guess it's an interesting trend across the board. I guess I haven't thought about it until you mentioned, I guess I have thought about it, but not in that context. Other contexts of things, of life. So where do we want to go next? Oh. Anywhere. Anywhere, yeah. Well, there's there's a lot, though. That's what I'm saying. Okay, so... Bigfoot. I, I, I noticed in the one... Bigfoot. Absolutely real. Yeah. No, I'm, no, I'm joking, well, Really? I, you think so? Well, you know, um, I, I, I do... <laughs> oh, no. I've raised the topic of Bigfoot. I guess I, I, I don't want to live in a world where there isn't something hiding in the woods. So I, I, I do think that there are strange things out there. Uh, things also have finite lifespans like the rest of us, so it may be that Nessie and Bigfoot are no longer with us, but I feel absolutely certain that I don't want to live in a world where you hear a twig cracking in the woods and you don't at least jump. You know, I, I don't believe in a world without mysteries, so I have a tremendous amount of sympathy for the uh, uh, for the Bigfoot hunters. So you It's more ethical sympathy than anthropological, but <laughs> that's where I come from. So you mentioned the Earth. Let's take. Would you go to Mars? I mean, that's kind of been the hot button issue the last couple. Wow, years. that's a fascinating question. Um, you know, a, a good friend of mine, Robert Zubrin, um, who would be just the kind of guy your listeners would be interested in, is a brilliant engineer who who has contributed to NASA's various plans to send a human mission to Mars. Uh, would I go to Mars? Uh, the answer is no. I think there's people who are better suited than me to go there. My interest, truthfully, is in inner space. You know, I, I celebrate and I love the people who want to explore outer space, and obviously it's something that's basic to the human quest to know. We all want to know what's around the next corner, what's around the next hill. I don't think we'd be human if that question didn't burn within us, but my deepest questions today are about inner space and primarily what is a good way to live and how much control do we have over our own lives because we're born into this world and we all have the experience of feeling that we enter this life with some sort of temperamental traits we don't know where they're from you know it could be karmic could be biological could be reincarnation could be any combination of those things and many more but we enter this life, and we all have certain character traits. Uh, people who struggle with shyness, for example, 
intense shyness. They tend to struggle with that all their lives, and they may lead happy and successful lives, but there's always this magnetic pull of introversion that they feel within their lives, or people who struggle with addictions. They may very successfully uh, remain in recovery, and and addictions never uh, ruin their lives or send their lives crashing into the into the rocks, so to speak. But that addiction remains with them as a permanent fact of life. So we all feel, to some greater or lesser degree, that we come into this life burdened or blessed with certain character traits, and there is unshakable as something organic, or, or arterial, almost like a limb itself. And my question for life is, in the face of that, how much power do I really have? How much control do I really have? I know that we live under multiple laws and forces, and I'm persuaded that one of those laws and forces is the causative powers of our mind. I do believe that our minds contribute to our experience and circumstance in very, very concrete ways. And what are the outer limits of that? You know, to what extent am I capable of engineering my existence, of coming into new experiences? And to what extent am I just in the grip of this magnetic pull of circumstances that I seem to be have been born into life with and that we're all born into life with. I want to understand man's capacity for power. I really want to understand that. That's a very occult question. It's a very interior question. So Mars is not where my eyes are set. Uh, I hope we get there. I believe we'll get there. But my, my eyes are really set with him. That's a good one. And, um, my my chat room is bringing me back to the occult and the that type of topic, and we're going to get off Mars. So you're All good. Right. You're good. How about this one? Okay. Let's let's go with this one. Yeah. In the, I'm going to add some words to this question. So here we go. Please. The occult and spirituality have had a ebbs and flows throughout the United States history. Where do you think we are right now? Are we trending downward, upwards? Where do you think? I think we're trending upwards. I'm seeing a huge uptick of interest, particularly in witchcraft, Wicca, neo-paganism. I was just reading a fascinating article uh, on a, a witchcraft-based website called The Wild Hunt, and they were talking about how stores that specialize in witchcraft are bucking the downward trend within retail nowadays. Obviously, the big box, a lot of the big box stores, a lot of the chain stores are closing because of digital commerce, Amazon in particular. But occult and witchcraft-related stores are completely bucking that trend. Those consumers, those customers, they really dig the intimate personal experience. Nobody has yet been able to buy them off through kind of chain products, chain stores, franchises, even digital commerce, powerful as it is. And it's just one of many signs I'm seeing including very plain demographic signs of growth within witchcraft. People are very interested in revivals of the ancient nature-based religions, retentions of pagan traditions, Celtic traditions, Druidic traditions. Sometimes the thread has been broken and it's very hard to find authentic traditions of an occult nature. We're sort of searching in the dark, but there are enough threads so that we can make sense of certain things and create innovations of our own. And new innovations, novel approaches to religious practice are perfectly valid. I don't think that to be a valid form of worship, worship something necessarily has to be old. And we're definitely seeing a growth in witchcraft today. I'm very heartened by it because I, I find occult traditions very empowering of the individual. And I'm asked all the time by journalists, uh, you know, is there an occult revival going on? And I very often say to them, it's always been here. It's an evergreen. I don't see signs of a revival. But for the first time in quite a while, I really am seeing a, a notable uptick of interest in witchcraft and a really fine uh, crop of literature growing out of that. There are a number of new books from first-time authors uh being published on the theme of witchcraft that are really, really good. Two authors in particular I admire are Gabriella Herstick and Pam Grossman, both of whom are coming out or just have come out with first-time books. And these are books of, of real depth and power. And so witchcraft is also producing really fine literature. So I feel very positive on that note. So I've got three points to make 
based off your, based off your comments. You, it's funny you mentioned Pam Grossman because um, I got an email about her today. So oh no, she, kidding! She'll be coming on the show probably in late May or early June. Um, that's excellent. <laughs> so that's a trip. Uh, that's a trip. The next one is that's synchronous. Wow. Yeah, that's that's the universe talking through us here. Um, right, right. The next one is now. This is going to sound insensitive. It's really not. I mean, I've had these things in my <laughs> life be- before, but so it's just kind of preferencing it because. Lay it on me. Ordering a, a stone, whichever stone you believe in, this, that, or the other, any of these um, occult items that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. You have, to, you have to go lay your hands on it because if I, you know, I've got yeah. hundreds of thousands of I stones agree. out my window here in my driveway, but if right. you pick, you picked one and sent it to me, I might not feel what you. Well, you probably didn't feel anything either, but. Um, <laughs> You know what I'm saying? But if I went out yeah, there and picked totally. one and made it mine or believed that one was better than the other four or five that I picked up. I agree. Up, I agree. That's, that's part of this. So, like I said, not to sound offensive, but I've yeah, been there. No, You've got to have skin in the game. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes people walk into a New Age store or an occult shop or a Wicca store, and they either come in touch with a stone or something that they just completely – vibrate with and you could see that as a metaphor you could see that as more literal but there is something intimate that has to go on there has to be a real human exchange and i think you're correct yeah it's not just a question of it ain't a can of soup you know it's (laughs) something you have to connect with stone soup never mind that's a whole nother (laughs) (laughs) right Um, those emails go to jim at mallardreport.com okay (laughs) I like this show because you know? we don't know what's going to happen. We could be like, talking Bigfoot, Mars. You know, I, I like the unexpected <laughs> quality of your questions. Well, that's good. I like I, this kind of you know because you've you've done. I don't want to put numbers in, but you've done interviews before, and you could tell. So the next question, I've got my tablet up in front of me, reading to you. Yeah, uh, that's no fun. I really have a little fun, and it's all in your wheelhouse. So we're going to play between the lines wherever they go. Please, anything. So, final point about the the statements you made a few minutes ago. Now you're gonna everybody's gonna have to rewind to catch back up. Um, Right. Uh I I think I don't want to say millennials because they get a bad rap for everything that seems to be going wrong. Right. Everything is their fault. Everything is their fault. I'm I'm persuaded of of that. I'm border. (laughs) I'm borderline on the you know the the one side of it. So I'm just trying not to. But with all this stuff going on with all these different churches between the abuse and the people they let in and people they don't let in. We're just going to leave yeah. that baggage at that. Yeah. It makes sense. Perfect sense to me that people are looking for more of a, I don't want to say individualized, personalized belief system, but not necessarily one where the, the walls bad pun, yeah. are so rigid. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my belief is that when people embark on the spiritual path, and this is a controversial thing I'm going to say, and a lot of people sort of chafe against this statement. And I'm not saying it to be provocative, but I, I've come to this conclusion at this point in my search that the spiritual search at its heart, regardless of what verbiage we put to it, is a search for power. It's a search for power. Ethical power, in most cases, but it's a wish to find some relationship between oneself and an outside force, a higher force, a invisible force that can serve as a source of help in one's life, as a source of dynamism and, 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 and ingenuity behind one's own sense of personal agency and wishes. We say thy will be done, but we're really hoping that the, the will of some greater intelligence will be the the will that somehow coalesces with our own and drives us towards an aim, whether it's recovery or finance or a relationship or something very intimate in our lives. And I do believe ultimately, ultimately, the individual will gravitate in the direction that authentically promises that. If that can be found within the prosperity gospel, then those congregations will grow. If that can be found within witchcraft, then that informal, more loosely based, more independent congregation will grow. And I think that's been the story of religion to a very great extent. People, uh, again, you know, will put all kinds of verbiage to it and sometimes will pay tribute to very high standards, but 
I think the thing that we're all really after is a sense of personal agency and power, one that comes from relating to some sort of broader or greater or higher power, however you want to put it. And I think that you'll see growth in whatever fields of religiosity seem to be promising or successfully delivering that to people. I, th- I think there's a change going on. Now, there's a good, bad, indifferent, well, I guess we could make a bold prediction right now, but that'd be just foolish on our part of how things are evolving and changing. But I guess that's part of life, though, through the history of everything, because if we didn't change, we'd still probably be under the king's rule. Yeah, and I I don't think the mainstream congregations are going to go away. You know, for some people, a congregational form of spirituality is very powerful, and the mainstream congregations take a very substantial cue from some of the things that we're talking about. You know, the prosperity gospel, to a very, very great extent, really grew out of new thought or uh, mind metaphysics. Mystical American philosophies that held that thoughts are causative were eventually reprocessed into language that proved acceptable to the church-going public. So when Pat Robertson, for example, talks about the law of reciprocity, that's his own cleaned-up version of what we might call the law of attraction. Uh, Norman Vincent Peale, uh, a conservative Protestant minister and a brilliant communicator, reprocessed the language of American mysticism in his best-selling book, The Power of Positive Thinking, which again took mysticism and kind of vetted it through scriptural reference, validated it through scriptural reference, and thus was born this kind of positive thinking branch of Christianity. The prosperity gospel traveled up through similar routes. So the mainstream congregations, um, Jewish, Christian, and otherwise, will almost always take cues from wherever the mass of people are gravitating towards, and they will they will find within their own religious expression um, programs and language and aims and goals that people are searching for. Religion responds a lot more fully and intently to public will than its institutions often like to admit. And while we're oh boy, we're almost putting this interview to bed. Oh, that's a bad joke at this point because of where I was going. I almost said we're almost ready to put this interview to bed, and then I look up and we have about seventeen minutes left. And that's not good. <laughs> Um, I'm sticking around. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I was going to ask you because I, I believe now. Correct me if I'm wrong. I seen you wrote a piece for somewhere about how the occult brought cremation to America. Yes, indeed. It's really wild. It's another example of how mainstream practices very often enter our society from the fringes. Right now, about half of all internments, half of all funerary arrangements in America are cremation. Half all Americans are cremated. Uh, And it was actually, this practice was considered very exotic, very arcane, very occult. It wasn't practiced at all uh, in America in the late 19th century. It was an occultist named Henry Steele Olcott who actually popularized cremation as a funerary choice. Olcott was a retired Civil War colonel who was a co-founder of the Theosophical Society, the occult organization which he co-founded with Madam H.P. Blavatsky in New York City in 1875. The following year, Olcott caused a near riot here in New York City where at the Masonic Hall, which is uh, on East 23rd Street, I'm sorry, West 23rd Street, um, he held America's first public cremation service and people thought it was outrageous they thought Olcott, this mad occultist, was introducing arcane pagan rites into public life. This was considered sacrilegious. It was considered, it was abnormal, arcane, frightening. And, and yet, it ignited public interest in cremation. It made the practice acceptable, or at least it introduced it in such a way that it would be found acceptable by future generations. And today, more than half the funerals in America are cremations. This was considered unthinkable several generations ago. And cremation, which was thought of as some weird Eastern practice or something that belonged to the mists of the antique past, 
was actually introduced into American life by this American occultist. And among the reasons that he cited to back up the use of reincarnation was not only that it's more hygienic, more efficient than burial, but that in lands where reincarnation is practiced, there are no reports of vampirism. So we can thank vampire fighting for the most popular funerary choice among Americans today, at least in part. Well, that was a bold leap. You just—I mean, it's connected, but boy, that's just—you you just took that big step. Comes right out of his writings. In fact, that article, "How the Occult Brought Cremation to America," I believe I wrote that for the Huffington Post. So, if people throw that into Google with my name, they will find it, and they will find that in Henry Olcott's writings, he's—he's he's the father of American cremation. He actually prominently and straightforwardly cites cremation as a deterrence to vampirism. We'll do you one better. We'll send them over to MitchellHarrelwich.com, and it's there on the sidebar, and they can click from there. If that was if that story oh, is not interesting, there's uh, probably 25 stories over there that they can probably find <laughs> one that'll catch their eye. There's some, certainly there's something there. I think they'll find the cremation story interesting, and uh, they can draw their own conclusions. But it came from uh, it was introduced into modern life by an occult practitioner. If they don't find anything interesting on your website, I'm not sure why they're listening to the show. They so. might be ready for cremation, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, oh. <laughs> I mean that in the gentlest way, <laughs> of course. I know. That was good, though. I liked it. Um, I also seen something about Ronald Reagan, which kind of uh, oh, yeah. got me He was going. a fascinating figure. I read about Reagan quite a bit. In my book, One Simple Idea, which is a history of the positive mind movement, Reagan was in many, many respects a, a West Coast New Ager who was never embarrassed by his interest in the occult or mysticism. He, you know, most people think of Reagan as a guy who had a passing interest in astrology and the first lady, Nancy Reagan was found to be consulting an astrologer in the second half of Reagan's administration, all of which is true, but Reagan's interest went deeper than that. And I've written articles about this in many places, from Salon to the Washington Post. I discovered, to my astonishment, back in 2010, and I've been writing about it ever since, that in some of Reagan's earliest lectures and speeches and those that he delivered up through the first term of his presidency, I discovered telltale language and phrase, phraseology uh, that he adopted from the work of the occult scholar Manly P. Hall, who wrote The Secret Teachings of All Ages and a book called The Secret Destiny of America, among others. And I was absolutely astonished to discover this, and it's just unmistakable. There's actual uh, pieces of phrasing that Reagan uses in some of his talks that come directly from Manley Hall's book, The Secret Destiny of America, which he was very clearly reading because he shares anecdotes and phraseology from the book. So Reagan's interest in the occult and in mysticism ran much deeper than just perusing the daily horoscope. And in a certain sense, this shouldn't be shocking. This shouldn't be altogether jaw-dropping because he spent about three decades of his adult life in Hollywood where practices of mysticism and the occult are as normal and as ordinary as visiting the dentist, and it touched his life. Many actors, in fact, uh, from all across the country, are very deeply steeped in and interested in mysticism. That's always been a part of life in the theater, in the movies. It was part of Reagan's life as well, and he brought it into the White House. He was uh, really a, a very curious and remarkable figure. In many ways, he was America's first New Age president, and I believe... Also at the website, I, I have an article from Salon which walks through all this in great detail, and uh, people will find it very interesting, I think. So I've got another question from a chatter here. We all are from Earth, but did we originate somewhere well, else? I wish I knew. I'm aware of that theory. I'm aware of the ancient astronaut theory. I'm aware of the stardust theories. It's It's very hard to say. You know, we as human beings have a terrible track record in, in keeping tabs on our own history. You know, as we were discussing earlier, we can't even find a cornerstone that was laid in the White House, you know, uh, uh, 200 and a quarter century ago. And, uh, you know, the fact that we can't locate a cornerstone that was laid, according to documentation and visual record, uh, doesn't put us on a very good track for 
discovering the true origins of our primeval past, um, I'm very disappointed, actually, uh, with our track record as a species for uh, figuring out our past. We, we, we lose track of things, including fairly recent things, very quickly. People get misquoted, ideas get misplaced, dates get flubbed, um, timelines that are questionable get canonized and get turned into something that you can no longer question. We're not very good at historicism as a species, so I'm in deep sympathy with the question, but uh, I wish I had greater faith in humanity's abilities to, to mine its, its own past. So I wrote down a couple words earlier, not really framed them in any sort of question, so I'm going to just give you the word, and you can just kind of relax a couple words or a couple sure. things, just how long you want to go. <laughs> yeah. Halloween. Halloween is an ancient Celtic holiday honoring deceased ancestors that traveled to America through the influence of Scottish and Irish folk. And it might interest people to know that the practice of trick-or-treating didn't really become popular until just after the Second World War. We think it was one of these things that was always with us, but people celebrated Halloween in different ways. They bobbed for apples, they held parties, they held rituals, including some really fascinating rituals one of which was called the Dumb Supper, where young women would set the table for supper and they would do everything backwards. And they would feel that if you if you held a supper party for people and did everything backwards, at the end of the night, you could look into a mirror and foresee the future. So we used to have a lot of very weird, wonderful traditions around Halloween. But trick-or-treating became popular uh, just around the Second World War, and that came to dominate everything. Next one. Next one's a fun one. Ouija yeah. board. Ouija, Ouija board. board. Ah, I'm looking at one right now. I have an antique Ouija board here with me in the room. Ouija boards are just fascinating. They were uh, originally called witching boards or alphabet boards, and they were being used by American spiritualists uh, back in Ohio. Uh, the earliest record that we have of people using Ouija boards is in northern Ohio. Going back to the year 1886, there was a newspaper report about it, and there was this little drawing in the newspaper, which was later picked up in other papers around the country, that showed a man and a woman using an alphabet board, and it was the spitting image of a Ouija board. And about five years later, a group of toy manufacturers in the city of Baltimore patented the alphabet board. They renamed it the Ouija board, and they pretty much controlled it thereafter. But it was really a folk invention that was created by American spiritualists who just wanted to find an easier way of talking to the dead. And it's still indoors. It's probably the only object from the age of spiritualism that is still a common, fairly common part of American life. You can buy one at a toy store. You can buy one at a drugstore, shrink wrap with a barcode. And yet it was an object that grew directly out of seance circles and spiritualism. You're not a football fan, are you? Because I just heard moving from Cleveland to Baltimore and... I'm not a football fan, no. I have to draw the line somewhere, you know. <laughs> it just kind of caught me as odd as, you know, and then you think about all the, you know, years of bad sports mojo up there in Cleveland and along the lake, and it's just kind of funny that's where this all started, you know. <laughs> yeah. People yeah. ask about the curse of these things and all, you know, and then I'm just like, well, there it is. It's, it's, it's traditional ever since it started. It's uh, the millennials. <laughs> it's their fault. Yeah. <laughs> so the other, the other one I want to ask you about, because you have this cool moon phase tattoo on your arm. Yeah. How, how many and what else you got and what's what's the next one going to be? Oh boy, the next one is going to be the Psychic Cross, the symbol of Topi, the Temple of Psychic Youth, just because I really love it and I believe in their ethic of experimentation. But I just got two new ones on my on my right hand. I got the the four bars of the punk band Black Flag, and on my left hand, I got a big like astrological sigil of the sun. I have lots of tattoos. I have a tattoo of a mystic named Neville Goddard, who's somebody I really admire. I have a tattoo of the all-seeing eye with the maxim around it, God smiles on our new order of the ages, which is a loose translation of the maxim on the back of our dollar bill, annuit septus noos ordo seclorum. I've got a symbol of Mercury. I've got the number 33, all kinds of things. And I've got Buddy Holly. We can't leave out Buddy Holly. Yeah. i got Bigfoot somewhere. Yeah. A whole bunch. We'll keep looking for Bigfoot, right? Please, please. Or, you know, that's the point, just to keep looking. He must never be found, but I just don't want my kids to grow up in a world that doesn't believe in Bigfoot. 
Well, I think millennials need to keep looking for Bigfoot because Please. Yeah. They, they're the ones with the phones. Right. <laughs> Sounds like a new show. <laughs> Pitch that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, these are more kind of uh, random little questions here as we Please. get five, well, under five minutes ago. Good grief. Five minutes? Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, uh, one historical event you could go and witness, but obviously I can't have you shooting somebody or impacting history. What historical event would I like to witness? Wow, that is a heavy question. Um, I'd like to witness uh, the serpent introducing Eve to the apple from the tree of knowledge in the garden. I don't know if that literally occurred, but that's the historical event that made us who we are, and I'd like to be there for that. be good to find out if it really happened, because obviously if you go try to go back and it doesn't happen... Then I can come back and I'd have quite a story for you guys. Like, hey, you know that story? <laughs> that never occurred. But, you know, if I could take my pick, since we're terrible, you know, we human beings are terrible at historiography, almost anything I could name, you know, unless it was quite recent, might be equally doubtful. But if I could really take my pick, that would be the historical event that I would like to be present for. Uh, let's see, what else do we have here? One famous person you'd like to meet. Wonderful question, wonderful question. Well, I'm not entirely sure it would be a famous person, but I'd like to meet the man that I have tattooed on my left upper arm, who is Neville Goddard. He was a, a mystic who worked in this country and, and died in the year 1972. He's not exactly famous, but he's the mystical teacher to whom I'm most attached. He taught simply that your imagination is God and that everything you see and experience is the outpicturing of your own emotionalized thoughts and mental images. And I believe he was a person of tremendous sincerity, intellect, great beauty as a human being. And I truly, truly in my heart of hearts would like to meet him, would like to exchange with him, would like to learn from him. That would be the person I'd want to meet. So do I dare ask this question? Because I believe I know the answer, but I've been wrong about this before. Favorite, yeah. favorite holiday? A uh, Halloween, of course. Okay. Yes, I did know How that. How could I say otherwise? <laughs> I did know that. <laughs> right. you, you know, I thought, oh, uh, well, Thanksgiving, of course. What, what were right. you thinking? Arbor Day. <laughs> it kicks ass. You know, no, I, I, Halloween is the time of year where, oh, gosh, you know, I come into contact with people who are so interested in these things. There's so much to do. It is the time of year I truly love. And that dumb dinner sounds like fun. I it we, is a trip. I have an article about that on Medium. I think it's called Halloween for Real. I quote Pam Grossman in there, and there's a lot of cool rituals, including the Dumb Supper that I write about in there. So this is this, this will well. You don't. You told me you didn't watch a lot of movies, so maybe I should ask about music instead, because you mentioned oh, you Buddy Holly. About movies, I I have I've made up for lost time. Um, well, do you have a favorite, I watch a fair? Do you have a favorite movie now? Or... I do. I'd, I'd say my favorite movie is Rosemary's Baby. There's just so much texture and beauty in it. And it takes something that, that people think of as so fearsome, which is worship of Satan, and it domesticates it in a way that's both hilarious and even more fearsome at the same time. And it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. I love the performances. I love the questions that it raises. I love the unexpected turns that it takes. And I love how the director, Roman Polanski, experimented with taking – this practice that seems so forbidden and so fearsome and completely domesticating it. That, that is, I would say, my favorite movie. So I almost forgot to ask you the most important question a host can ask the guest. Where, can, peop where can people find you? Uh, <laughs> they can find me through my website, MitchHorowitz.com. They can find me on Twitter. They can find Occult America, The Miracle Club, or any of my books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any independent bookstore that has a good New Age or Occult section, and uh, uh, on Facebook as well, and YouTube, of course. I have lots of lectures up. If you throw my name in there, you'll have hours of fun. Yes. I, Mitch, I've got to say, I enjoyed tonight immensely. I hope you did as well. Likewise. Really loved it. Thank you, man. We'll have to do it again sometime. I'd be pleased to. Thank you. Thank you, and have a good night. Take care. Thanks. Okay, and that's going to do it for tonight. The V 
views and opinions expressed on the Mallard Report are those of the host and participants. For past shows, social media links, and so much more, visit Mallard.com, M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D.com. And thanks for listening. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily.